just really appreciate that you um, chose to be here in uh, what is an incredibly challenging uh, uh, topic. Um, it's challenging for us as IJN because it's one of the, sadly, one of the growth areas that we see in modern slavery and a particularly brutal uh, aspect of modern slavery. So the online sexual exploitation of children is what we're talking about. And we've got an, uh, an amazing panel, which um, I'm not going to introduce because I'm going to ask them to introduce, or Annie to introduce them uh, in shortly and I hand over to them. Panel of uh, experts and uh, provocateurs and uh, activists. Um, so uh, we are delighted that you made time to be part of this this morning. Thank you. And um, International Justice Mission, um, who's really aware of International Justice Mission? Just put your hands up. Put, your, put them up high. Don't be embarrassed. Everyone else, look at these people. These are the ones going to heaven. <laughs> but it's not, it's not too late to join them. I might have misunderstood some of my theology uh, on that matter. Um, we are... Uh, by some measures the largest anti-slavery organisation in the world and what we really have done for 20 years is work with police and prosecutors and magistrates and district officials to find where slavery is happening, work with those government agencies, the agencies of the states to rescue those held in slavery and to work with the police to bring prosecutions to the slave traders and slave owners and to see that through to convictions and in the course of that train thousands of government officials and justice system actors in how to better protect the most vulnerable poor and of course to care for those survivors of uh, modern slavery. We currently have around three and a half thousand uh, people going through our after care program some of that and that ranges from incredibly intense uh, multi-year support for a child who has been held and raped every day for years through to rehabilitation and vocational training and community support for those families maybe who've been held in bonded labor situations just for a year or two so a whole range of responses and uh, we're going to see a little video at the moment, in just a moment, which uh, introduces the uh, online sexual exploitation of children aspect of it. And after we've seen that, I'm going to hand over to Annie, and um, we'll get on with the day. The, this, is an, this is an area of huge importance for IGM. Um, we have been, <coughs> excuse me, we have been working on this aspect of slavery um, for the last seven years, when we began to see it uh, become a prominent thing. And it's become prominent as the internet has become uh, more global and, and, and faster and more connected. It's become more prominent as finance systems allow money to move around the world more anonymously and more easily. It's become uh, more prominent as one of the dark sides of globalization, as the spread of language and technology and of uh, connections have increased. Someone once said to me, but this is not like normal slavery, it's a virtual crime. 
because it is about someone in the West or in the global North paying money to orchestrate uh, the images and the video of abuse. And of course, it is not a virtual crime because behind every one of those images is a real person who is really being abused. And the path of that abuse has taken the all too familiar forms of trafficking and of enslavement and of violence. Slavery, slavery is only possible when desperately vulnerable people meet viciously violent people who think they can get away with it. Part of our responsibility is to ensure that they can't get away with it. We've uh, rescued nearly 500 children from this kind of abuse in the Philippines alone. We've seen uh, over 160 people convicted in the last few years. And this morning is another little step in how we raise awareness and how we raise action to bring an end to this particular form of slavery. So we're going to watch a little film about it and then I'm going to hand over to Annie. On behalf of IGM, thanks again for being here this morning when there were so many other options, all of which looked fascinating, but you have made the right choice. <laughs> I think we can see over. available in the internet is the exploitation of children and cyber sex trafficking so I think there was we've always got some sound issues apologies for that um, so um, would you welcome the panel <laughs> Hi everyone, uh, thanks David and thanks very much for everyone coming along. My name's Annie Kelly, I'm a journalist and editor at The Guardian and for the last six years I've been running The Guardian's special reporting project on modern slavery and trafficking. It's a global reporting project um, which is looking at all forms of, uh, of modern slavery and trafficking across the world and we do investigations and special reports. And I've worked closely with IJM on a number of stories and a number of kind of big pieces looking specifically at the crime of online sexual exploitation of children and, and cyber crimes of that nature across the world. So I'm, I'm really happy to be here today. It's obviously a really, really hard topic. It's a very upsetting subject matter that we're going to be discussing today. But of all the reporting that we've done over the last six years, I think this is one of the most urgent topics that we need to deconstruct and acknowledge because the scale of it is absolutely staggering. And there is, at the moment, little impediment to people who want to go out and, and commit these crimes on, on uh, repetitively and persistently. And so I think it's, it's an incredibly vital issue that we need to face up to. And, and I hope events like today will start to move us in the right direction. We've got a brilliant panel. 
this morning. Um, I'm going to actually introduce them in the order that they're going to be speaking. So, uh, Yin Jones here, um, who has gallantly stepped in um, at the last minute from the CPS, and she is the CPS's Senior Policy Advisor on uh, Cyber Child Sexual Abuse. Uh, to her right, we have Christian Papalontiu. Yes, I've been practicing that all morning. He is head of the Home Office's Tackling Exploitation and Abuse Unit, responsible for addressing online sexual exploitation of children. Um, to Yin's left, we have Bishop Alistair Redfern, who is uh, served at the Bishop of Derby from 2005 to 2018, and recently acted as an expert advisor to the Independent Review of the Modern Slavery Act. And uh, finally, Maria Miller, MP, uh, who has also been really, really um, forensically involved in the current review of the modern slavery legislation and has also conducted the Home Office Commission's um, yeah, independent review of the modern slavery legislation, which I've just repeated. So thank you everyone for attending. Um, first we're going to hear from each panellist for a few minutes, then we're going to open up to you guys on the floor and then we'll kind of combine questions from the floor with some panel discussion. So maybe you can uh, begin, Yin, by just explaining the, the context in which you work at CPS. Yes, of course. I um, just want to say uh, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, delighted to be here. Really enjoyed the uh, parliamentary breakfast, which was great. Um, just by way of a background, as you heard, I work as a senior policy advisor for the Crown Prosecution Service. Um, and for those of you who don't know what the uh, Crown Prosecution Service or the CPS uh, is we are the uh, principal prosecuting authority in England and Wales um, and our role is to bring the offenders to justice by prosecuting them for the right offence. Um, every charging decision is based on the same two-stage test code which is set up in the code for Crown Prosecutors. The first test is, uh, is there sufficient evidence to afford the realistic prospect of conviction? And secondly, is it in the public interest to prosecute? So that's just by way of background to the CPS. In terms of the challenges that I've been asked to speak about, in terms of the perspective from the CPS's view, um, it, it's right that the main challenge is the fact that advanced technology has brought about a new way of committing mm -hmm. child sexual abuse. I'm talking mainly about live streaming. A live streaming has allowed the offenders to first um, commit child sexual abuse from a distance. They don't actually have to be there physically. And secondly, and more worryingly, they have enabled the offenders to anonymize themselves, to conceal their identities to the extent that uh, they use heavily encrypted email addresses, um, software to um, conceal the identities and that has caused quite a lot of difficulties evidentially and legally. Um, these um, recent developments around live streaming has meant that there is more of an, uh, a, a, a focus on international inquiries. Uh, it also involves uh, multiple victims um, and it has also brought about a need, an urgent need for international collaboration. So those are the main challenges. However, the CPS, in collaboration with other agencies, have been able to bring around some high-profile successes um, through 
effective international collaboration, particularly with organisations such as the National Crime Agency, uh, as well as with our prosecutors overseas. Um, so for instance, I, I think some of you might have heard of the case of Matthew Folder. Um, he was convicted of uh, offences relating to uh, 46 victims across the country as well as across the world. Um, and he received a sentence, prison sentence of 38 years initially, but it was reduced to sort of 33. And that um, provided a really interesting and um, positive way of collaborative working between uh, the US and the UK together with the uh, secret services um, and security services across the world. In another case, there was someone else who was convicted of um, offences um, for which he received a prison sentence of 16 years minimum term, uh, 13 life sentences, um, and that uh, related to children, not just in the UK, but also in Thailand. Uh, I just want to say a quick word about uh, our extended jurisdiction. Uh, some of you may be aware that because of the extended jurisdiction, which has been provided by legislation, um, British nationals can be brought to justice. However, at the moment, uh, that's only confined to British nationals in England and Wales, and not in Scotland or Northern Ireland. So quickly moving on to the way forward, uh, I know that uh, Christian is going to be speaking about uh, the work that the government is doing, so I, I won't touch on that, particularly around the online harms white paper. But what I can say is that the CPS is working collaboratively with all the departments across government, um, and we, we do recognise that because this is a multifaceted issue, uh, it, it requires a multi-agency um, and a whole agency approach. So I just want to focus on three, three things, just, just take a few, few minutes if I may, on, on, on what the CPS is doing. Um, so I want to talk about training, I want to talk about sentencing, and I want to talk about our external stakeholder engagement. So briefly about um, training. The uh, CPS prosecutors who prosecute these types of uh, offences are highly trained, they're specialist prosecutors, um, and they are trained to uh, ensure that they are up to date with the most recent uh, legal developments together with the um, recent technological um, developments as well. Uh, we, we have a publicly accessed uh, legal uh, advice or, or, or legal guidance on our CPS website if you were ever interested, you know, do, do, do have a look at it. Um, in relation to sentencing, I've been asked about sentencing quite a bit, but uh, it's right to say that um, sentencing is a judicial function and to that extent um, the CPS does not determine um, sentencing. However, um, the judiciary will work in accordance with the sentencing guideline and in this case it will be the sentencing, sexual offences sentencing guideline which sets very fixed parameters around harm, culpability, aggravating factors and mitigating factors and what we do with the prosecutors is to um, emphasize the importance of them bringing these factors before the judges to enable them to make a informed decision. And then finally, just talking about the um, engagement with stakeholders, uh, CPS recognizes that we can't act and work in the corner, that we do need to engage with uh, stakeholders like, like yourselves 
because you are the ones with the expertise that can bring to bear to change our policies and to inform our policies. So we have established a child sexual abuse um, stakeholder forum um, and that consists of representatives from voluntary organisations um, together with uh, charities and from members of the academia. And in one of our previous uh, meetings, we discussed about online harms. And that was a very, very interesting um, forum because we were able to find out from the stakeholders about what really mattered to them. And one of the representations that, that, that we received was to look at uh, placing the needs of the victim and their families at the heart of the investigation so that we can get a proportionate response in the criminal justice service. Um, so we continue to work with them closely in assisting with this very um, difficult and sensitive, sen sensitive area. Thanks, so that's thank you, thank you very much. Um, Christian, can you, can you talk to us a bit about the, the role of the Home Office and the role of government in tackling this? Could, could you maybe just give us a bit of context at the beginning? Can yeah. you talk about, uh, I know that you've been working in this area for a number of years, maybe you could just start by giving us a bit of context about, yeah, you know, about I, the, the potential scale of this problem and, and, and the, the, the potential scale of perpetrators here in the UK as well. Amongst British no problem. Um, so thank you everyone. Again, pleasure to be here and um, thank you to IJM for organising. And I was going to commend IJM on the work that you do, particularly in the Philippines, which you're about to get the video on, but which you haven't seen. But again, we know that the work in the Philippines has been really important in terms of real support for real victims um, and really helping in terms of what we would term capacity building within the Philippines to make sure that they have the wherewithal to actually make sure they're dealing with these crimes uh, as rigorously as possible. Try and start at the start. So my job is to tackle child sexual abuse and exploitation working to the Home Secretary, um, who has said very clearly that tackling child sexual exploitation and abuse is his number one priority, which is great for me to have a Home Secretary who has said that. Um, sometimes it's quite difficult because if it's number one priority, it means there's a lot of work to do, um, but it's brilliant in terms of just really having that political engagement and that political drive to really make a difference in this area. Um, and I think it's important just to reflect that when we are talking about child sexual abuse and exploitation, my job is to try and look at child sexual exploitation and abuse in the round. And within the UK, we have been on a bit of a journey, I would say. In the last decade, we have Savile and the abuse uh, that was exposed. And the whole issue, I think, that came out of that of um, vulnerability hitting authority, um, really challenging some stereotypes around who child sexual abusers are and who victims are, which is fairly transformative, I think, in kind of addressing what I would describe as a culture of denial uh, around child sexual abuse and exploitation. We have had the abuse scandals in Rotherham and other northern cities and other cities full stop across England, Wales, the country, which again has exposed vulnerable young girls, mainly, and boys, probably traditionally seen as problem, if you like, on the streets, and therefore not being taken seriously when they have come forward with allegations of child sexual abuse and exploitation. Uh, and authorities not believing the sheer scale of abuse that they were being told about. And I guess we, in relation to this discussion, we have now seen the sheer scale of child sexual abuse and exploitation online facilitated by the internet. So there are 
big, quite big shocks to the system. And the common theme in all of this is the more you look, the more you find, because these are hidden crimes and have always traditionally been hidden crimes. So success in this area, in the first instance, is actually exposing those crimes in the first instance. And if you look at reporting rates of child sexual abuse picked up by the police, they've increased by 200, 300% over the last five years. And yet we still know that only about 25% of victims will disclose abuse to the police or the authorities. So if we are successful, the number of victims that we identify should continue to go up, which is good, but which creates a whole series of challenges in terms of the capability and capacity of organisations, including criminal justice organisations, local authorities, international partners, to simply keep pace with what is being seen and what is being exposed. And online, that's the focus of today's discussion. There are figures, Home Secretary spoke at the NSPCC last week. We have seen a 1,000%, 1,000% increase in referrals going to the National Crime Agency from uh, US counterparts of imagery that has been identified on platforms, goes up to the US, comes down to the NCA. 1,000% increase in the last five, six years. Now that is huge in terms of how uh, law enforcement can deal with the sheer volume and the approach that you need to take to actually really start to strategically try and target and break the threat. Uh, so I've only got five minutes, so I'm going to try and keep this as brief as possible, but a few key areas of work that we are focused on. One, I talked about the law enforcement challenge, is making sure that the NCA and local policing and regional policing partners working in collaboration with their international counterparts are really doing all they can to focus on the highest harm networks of offenders. They don't know if you've seen um, some of the figures in terms of what's termed the dark web, and the number of sites and the number of users and the number of offenders in the UK who pose a threat. The NCA conservatively estimate there are about 80,000 to 100,000 people in the UK who pose a sexual risk to children. And that's a conservative estimate. Dark web users, forums where you go on the dark web and see some of the worst, most horrendous material, um, is again in the hundreds of thousands. We are seeing, and this is the real sort of escalating, evolving nature of the threat, as you see some of these forums online, what we see is what I would call the normalisation and the radicalisation of child sexual abuse. So, if you are an offender, traditionally, there would have been a certain social taboo, there would have been uh, a feeling of shame, there would have been a feeling of not wanting to admit to yourself, let alone others, that you have sexual interest in children and you abuse children. Now there are communities which bring offenders together and almost normalise those behaviours and break down that kind of key protective factor of the social taboo of offending. And there are, again, if you want access to some of the worst sites, you have to put first generation imagery onto those sites. You have to join, in order to join some sites, you have to conduct abuse and put that imagery on that platform. And this is where the online, offline world, we really need to join them together. So picking up on the points that were made earlier, these crimes are not victimless. We cannot treat online abuse in isolation from offline abuse. They are intrinsically linked. If you want to join some of these forums and you need to put first generation imagery on there, where do you get that imagery? We've seen cases, the NCA have talked about cases where people will abuse their own children in order to get the imagery, to put it on the website, to join the forum, to get access to a whole load of other imagery. 
And then we have the internationalisation of it, where we have vulnerable cohorts in different countries where you can, for the price of £12, access live streaming of child sexual abuse from countries like the Philippines. So the more you look, the more you find, and the more the challenge is, but we need to look, we need to find, we need to uncover, and then we need to have a, a joint approach to actually focus on this. Sounds trite, but this is a combination of government, law enforcement, industry, NGOs, international partners. That is the only way we will bear down on the threat. A few key points just, on the international face. Sorry, one more minute. One more minute. Yeah. International space, key bits. We protect global alliance, trying to bring all countries together to share information, to share knowledge, to share best practice, to share commitment to tackle child sexual abuse and exploitation. Funding provided via End uh, Violence Against Children Fund, 40 million over the last four years, to really support capacity building overseas. And the other significant bit, industry, working with industry, we've published something called the Online Harms White Paper, which is about getting industry to do everything they can to take this material off their platforms, whether it's imagery, whether it's tackling grooming, whether it's taking live streaming. And then finally on live streaming, some investment from UK government and others to really look at what technical solutions there are in terms of AI and other solutions to start to detect the live streaming of abuse, take it down, identify the victim, identify the offender and bring them to justice. I could go on for hours, obviously, I've overrun, <laughs> um, but a whole, genuinely, this needs a complete international NGO, UK government, UK law enforcement, criminal justice system, civil society, parents, carers, functions drive it forward. Thank you so much. I think maybe if we go next to Maria. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Kristen's just painted a kind of horrifying picture of the challenge that we're up against. Can you talk a bit about how your work looking at legislation and looking at, at how the, the need for tighter legislation in order to actually try and not only recognise but start to really properly address yeah. this uh, as an urgent kind of political and legislative priority? Um, yes, so Maria Miller and I, I chair a select committee on equalities issues, but I've also uh, worked with Frank Field and Elizabeth Bubbleslos on the Modern Day Slavery Review, which we published about a week ago now, um, which, uh, which we had fantastic help from Alistair Ron and, and many others and many of you in this room. The, the problem with this area is uh, the fact that it has emerged relatively under the radar over the last decade and a half. And we're, we're all culpable in it because I was a minister 10 years ago uh, and went with David Cameron to uh, the US to talk to many of the providers about how we could better remove sexual images of children. And uh, we did a, a reasonable job at work at, at trying to get some movement in the early days but what government hasn't done here, or indeed in almost any other country in the world, is properly review the way in which the internet is affecting people's lives, including child abuse images, and the way it differently affects people's lives um, in comparison with the same offence that might be committed offline. The government's mantra, and I'm sure people who represent the government here would, would agree with me is, you know, what's illegal offline is illegal online. But actually the impact of, of crimes online is entirely different. Um, and so I think that has been somewhat of a cop-out and we need to change that. So I was delighted to read um, cover to cover the online white, white paper, 
which starts to, I think 10 years too late, uh, but anyway, it starts to look at how we get some structure into what has become an industry which is still more akin to the Wild West than anything else that we are used to dealing with. And I don't say that lightly because if you read research done by Ofcom, um, it will show you that most people think that anything they read that they, and I do mean most, so more than 50% of people think that anything that you read online <coughs> that they've got through Google must be true because Google will have vetted it. And, and that is the starting point. So if you can access it online, I'm sure some people will possibly say, well, I can access it online, I can see it. What's the, what's the downside? Now, uh, the, clearly when it comes to viewing child abuse images, there are many different sorts of perpetrators, and I'm not an expert in this, and there's two people down there who know much more about it than I do. But are we doing enough to make sure that we've got the right structures in place? I think the online white paper will help in terms of putting a regulatory structure in place for the on online world. Uh, but as I say, we are, we are running to catch up on this now. Um, because uh, of, of 10 years of inaction. Um, in terms of our laws, they are designed for an offline world <coughs> and need fundamental overhaul. Unfortunately, the online harms white paper doesn't yet include those. Um, and I say yet, hope, hopeful the gentleman at the end will take that back to the Home Secretary um, and, and, and underline the, the strength of feeling amongst members of Parliament that this is an opportunity to fundamentally reform the law in terms of particularly sexual abuse images, not just in connection with children, but in connection with adults as well, um, so that we can get more clarity and simplicity on laws that can be effectively implemented by the police. Um, and then my final bit would be, because um, I can sense we need to move on, uh, is, is the, um, the importance of giving the police the right resources to enforce the laws. We love passing laws in Parliament, we love them, and we put them on the shelf and we feel so proud about them, um, and then when we get them off the shelf again and we look whether anything's actually happened, we're shocked when we find that the police haven't been able to implement them. So making sure that the police have funding, and a, a few years ago I said something which, uh, again, I hope the gentleman at the end might remind the Home Secretary of, which is you know, when, when it comes to football teams and the problems that we've had over the years of you know, football hooliganism, you know, people creating problems and the need for the police to be there at football matches. Do you know who pays for that, that policing? It's the football teams. The football teams pay for the policing of their grounds. So why oh why are we not looking at this issue, which is created by the internet industry? It's not created by anybody else. It's created by an industry which has allowed itself to um, develop and for products to be developed in a... And in a fanciful way, why do we not make them responsible for some of the funding of the police? Now, some of them pay taxes, but not many. Um, so we, I think we need to become far better at pointing the finger of blame where it lies, which is an industry which has allowed its products to be, um, to not take on the mantra of safe by design and has left society picking up the tab. Mm -hmm. Um, so those are the issues I would hope you would be thinking about and I would urge all of you to be lobbying your members of parliament wherever you live in the country on this because as the online harms white paper goes forward into a piece of legislation before parliament 
in what is a, what is a minority government, um, all of us as backbenchers have the power to be able to get the government to think about this more carefully. Thank you very much. Um, and Bishop Redfern, I was wondering if you could speak to that. I know you've been very involved um, both inside Parliament and outside. Maybe you could talk a bit about the role of the church in, in, in looking at and addressing this global problem. Okay, thank you, and I'll try and keep you... Thank you, yeah, we just want to... <laughs> I'm feeling really bad yeah, So I, I want to talk a little bit about the role of the church, but also um, that can't be separated from politics and actually the responsibility of all of us in the room. And I'm, um, I want to um, thank the IGM for creating this space, the amazing work they do, but the fact is we're losing the battle on this front as in others. The criminal activity is so um, valuable to people, creates so much wealth, is so highly and sophisticatedly organised that we're losing the battle. So we've got to step up. Um, I'm just going to give you a couple of pictures, case studies. I, I challenged and privileged to work with lots of victims. Um, New York General Assembly 2017. Um, in the fringes, I was involved in a meeting about modern slavery. We had a presentation from American law enforcement people, and uh, this guy uh, showed us about the dark web. Um, I didn't realise till then that Google only give us, he said, 11% of what's out there. And the rest of it is, you know, for selling arms and children or whatever. Um, and he showed us, quite graphically, that it was as easy to order an eight-year-old child for your sexual gratification as it is to order a pizza. And the websites were amazingly similar in a way, with pictures, descriptions, prices, all the kind of sales tools. He said the number of people accessing these sites was out of control. They didn't have the resources properly to police or follow up. They could only deal with crimes that hit them in the face, really. Um, and he ended this very challenging talk by saying, the problem is there are now no moral stops. That is, children used to be a moral stop. We went through the 60s, and if you were grown up, had the money, you could do what you like, with who you like, but generally people felt children had to be protected. And he said, that's gone now. There are no moral stops. And I think there's an enormous challenge to the churches, faith communities, and politicians to have the courage to start talking about morality and boundaries and values and the word no as well as yes to our temptations. That discourse is just not present in the public space from the churches, I'm ashamed to say, let alone anybody else. We're too busy being chaplains to the dissolution of liberal society, really. And we need to be standing up and saying there need to be moral stops. We're fallen people. Uh, this presentation was followed by a, a, an interview with a trafficker who'd been trafficking children for this exploitation. And he said, you know, I said to him, why children? And he said, because they do what you tell them. They're easier to train. They're much better operatives for my criminal gang than um, grown-ups who sometimes get shirty and what. Children can be trained. So there are no moral stops. Religion and politics, if they have any value, are about some kind of moral frame and values, as is IGM. Uh, second little story, I have time for one. Yes. Um, a friend of mine called Mayor, I'll call her, um, happily settled with foster parents in a city in the north of England. Uh, from the ages of 13 to 17, 
she was being pimped around this town at weekends and at nights. Um, throughout this time, as she was living at home, she was going to school, she was seeing the doctor, and nobody noticed. People just thought, well, she's a shirt teenager, she's out all night, she perhaps drinks too much, whatever it is. The Clure Initiative, which I help organise, which is churches and faith groups fighting modern slavery, our strapline is, we see you. We've got to notice what's going on, and not just think, that's a shirty teenage girl, but something terrible has happened. She now realises she's probably suffering from mental health issues, all kinds of things, until she was rescued. But it just happened to her. And she was living in a family, going to school, seeing the doctor, nobody noticed. Uh, we have all got to open our eyes and notice what's going on and ask more subtle questions, more difficult questions than, is this a naughty girl? You know, is somebody exploiting her, taking advantage of her? There's a huge agenda about the responsibility of all of us to notice, to step up, to have a discourse that there are boundaries and values. Do you want me to stop there or should I tell yes. one more story? Well, um, <laughs> we can come back to, you, to the okay, story at yeah. the end. I just wanted to, to kind of open it up. I know that we haven't got that much time left, so um, why don't we finish with the story? And I'll leave a couple of minutes at the end because I think that those, that it really does bring it to life um, in a horrifying but very necessary way. I was wondering, there's been a lot of listening, I was wondering if, if we could take a couple of questions from the audience and then maybe we could have a few kind of panel discussions, but is there, a, do, is there any questions that anyone would like to ask at this point of our panel? No? Yes. Sir. Yeah. So, so what do you feel? You feel you'd like to have a kind of overview of exactly what the problem is on a global scale and what countries are involved and yeah. It will help us. I'm just thinking about it because if I'm not in this type of environment, I wouldn't know what goes on in part of the world. Or even though I hear it on the news, I never yeah. Well, I don't know how long the video... I mean, maybe there was someone on the panel who could address that and give give a bit of an overview. Um, I can try. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so in terms of child sexual abuse, it is genuinely a global problem that is a problem just about in every country in the world. Um, we are seeing... Uh, so traditionally people will talk about the Philippines and Southeast Asia as a traditional kind of place where British sex offenders would travel to in order to abuse children. As the internet opens up and as more and more children across the globe have access to the internet, that kind of model is oversimplistic. There are huge points of vulnerability in South America. Um, we are more than aware that in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, that there are huge markets that are being opened up and exploited. We have got, uh, I mentioned something called the We Protect Global Alliance, which is a global consortium where all countries come together and share a, what's called a national model response. The next summit uh, is taking place in Ethiopia in November, which the Home Secretary will be going to and chairing in reflection of we've got to do a huge amount of capacity building and a huge amount of support and indeed actually we've got a huge amount to learn from partners across the world. So there's some amazing initiatives going on in, uh, I can't remember where it was, I think it was in Nigeria in terms of just really impressive new capacity building projects, stuff happening in Kenya that is really, um, again, 
changing the way that we're thinking about how we approach this internationally. But again, Eastern Europe, just about every area in the world, there are markets that are being opened up for children to be sexually exploited. And it is because of the perverse, pervasive nature of the internet that anywhere where you've got a link from one country to another, a buyer, again, in the global north, predominantly, trying to access uh, anyone who can be exploited quite easily right across the world, it is a global challenge and a global problem. And we risk kind of trying to bang down problem in one area only for it to start emerging in a new way in a new area. So this is a properly global challenge uh, where we really need to focus on the whole. Just a little example. Um, last year, a travel firm in Florida was bust. And it was arranging holidays for 5,000 people a year to go from Florida to Mexico, going for a holiday. When it was properly investigated, each of those people going was going to exploit a child in Mexico. And it was all set up through this travel. So it's kind of very persuasive. And as you say, the market shifts uh, you know, to suit the customer and the opportunity. <coughs> can, can I add a slightly different dimension onto that? Because quite rightly, um, Home Office and others focus a great deal on online child abuse images that are generated overseas, and also those that might be generated through organized crime in the UK. But there's an all, also another avenue, which is self-generated images that might be innocently distributed between young people <coughs> that are then harvested and put onto websites. And I hosted uh, the launch of a paper yesterday, actually it was to do with adult online sexual abuse images. But we heard a, a, an extremely harrowing experience of one individual who was over the age of 18, but how her image had been uh, taken by actually not somebody who was a former partner, but a friend, an image she shared, and that image still, 10 years on, she could not get rid of it online, and she would occasionally have it pop up on another pornography website. So, um, and the same happens for people under the age of 18 who do distribute their images uh, quite innocently, maybe, within a relationship, to find them then used in a commercial setting. So we shouldn't lose sight of that, because that is um, devastating the lives of young people in this country today. And there can be few of us in this room who don't know at least one young person or their parents who've had that happen to them, where an image has been distributed without their consent. Um, it is still a child abuse image, even if it was taken by the child themselves. Um, and we cannot lose sight of the importance of educating children against taking images like this and distributing them. I have to say, uh, um, that is my slightly illiberal view of this. But if it's not there, it can't be distributed. And I think we should be frank with children about the possible implications. And you know, this is obviously an, an international. Mm -hmm. A lot of this, it, it, the, these are international crimes. Obviously, it happens on a domestic scale as well. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about the, the difficulties in in working kind of across, you know, across thousands of miles where, you know, away with kind of law enforcement officials in the Philippines or in Kenya or in the States. Can you talk a bit about the, the challenges that that it's online possible. space presents? Yes. So the CPS has prosecutors across the world. Uh, they are stationed in Asia and in America, North America, South America. And their role is to make sure there's effective collaboration between them and the local agencies that they work with. 
and um, mutual legal assistance is usually required. So, for example, if um, an interview is required, uh, a British police officer can't simply go across to the foreign jurisdiction to conduct that. There's got to be legal channels, and obviously that then builds in delay. Um, and international inquiries are also difficult because of the uh, electronic and communication issues uh, around computers. And um, I'm, I'm not a very technical technological person myself, but as I understand it, um, in terms of making sure that the laws in that country uh, reflect the laws in this country, um, you've got to make sure that the um, offence in that particular country is also an offence in this country before that, 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 that can be so. Um, but but just, just touching quickly, if I may, on um, what you said, Maria, um, what, what we do find as well is around peer-to-peer -peer offending. Um, that, that is a, 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 a real issue of concern at the moment. So you get situations where children are in a relationship and they, they sort of feel some pressure to um, take photographs of themselves and then to then post it on site. And, and we are frequently being asked whether or not it's in public interest to prosecute for something like that. And sometimes it's not just confined to local images, but it's, it's sometimes um, international images as well. So to answer your question, I, I, I think um, international um, matters do complicate things a little bit in terms of the extensive international inquiries that needs to be brought to bear. Um, but going back to the code that we use, we would um, ensure that there's sufficient evidence and whether it's a public interest to prosecute. And we do work with our partners across to, to secure conviction. Mm. Yes, good morning. Um, so just to add one thought on that as well. So IJM has just started, I just got back from the Philippines. Oh, thanks. I just, I just got back from a trip to the Philippines uh, with IJM, um, where we were look, I was looking at the Philippine Internet Crimes Against Children Centre that's just been started, which is a collaborative effort between uh, UK NCA, Australian Federal, Federal Police, and uh, Philippine National Police and International Justice Mission. And that is about looking at how do you use uh, like international collaboration to make a bigger impact on this by sharing best practice and having one central point where referrals from uh, agencies all around the world, whether that's FBI or in Sweden, Sweden or Norway, anywhere else where these referrals are happening are going to one place so that there's not a duplication of effort. And we're starting to see that that's having real impact. And we've done like several collaborative rescue operations of children um, from that. But I also just wanted to add a little bit of context um, to what you were saying about what is this crime. Um, and just coming from the point of view of a survivor. So one of the survivors I met in the Philippines is called Joy. And she was 10 years old when she was first um, exploited. And her mum had gone abroad to work, her parents had split up, she was being passed around various family members, she was doing odd jobs like cleaning and that kind of thing to try and make enough money to survive. And one day a lady, one of her neighbours who she trusted, said to her, could you come in and help with the cleaning? So some of her friends and her went in to go and do what they thought was helping with cleaning, but turned out to be, uh, they, she said, can you take your clothes off? I'm going to take naked pictures of you. So they went in, they took pictures, the abuse got worse, it wasn't just pictures, it moved on to live streaming of real sexual abuse of 10 year old child and her friends, um, which lasted for years. And 
that was picked up because of international uh, referrals saying we've seen the people in Western countries watching this content that was referred back to the Philippines police who were then able to work with IJM to conduct a rescue operation where we were able to um, find Joy and some of her friends and she's now in aftercare and she well she's actually just gone to finishing college and which is amazing so she's kind of turned it around and she's now an advocate on this and has shared her story um, on international platforms which is incredible so there is hope at the end of it but I think it's important to understand like this crime is something that affects very young children so the kind of difference between uh, exploitation in brothels and that kind of thing and this is that in IJM's cases 50% of the children are 12 years old and under and the youngest child that we've helped rescue is three months old so this is why it's urgent and it's why it's morally urgent I think speaking to your point Alistair and so I think, I don't know if that gives you some context, it's pretty gritty, it's pretty grim, but it's a growing problem and, you know, the, the hidden nature of it makes it even more difficult. But yeah, anyway, I just wanted to add that. Thank you. That was really horrifyingly clarifying. Thank you, Malia. I mean, yeah. Ah, yes. Thank you. In the case of a young girl who is being sexually abused and um, she confides to you and um, she opens up to you and everything, but she says because of her immigration status, she doesn't want it reported or else she'll be deported. And you know that uh, you know, she really has to be rescued. So what type, of what type of protection do you have for such victims? Because she doesn't want to go back to her home country and at the same time, the abuse is going on. Okay, so, so you're referring to someone who might be in the UK and his yes, abuse yes, is happening in the UK. How do you handle it? Um, if I were, if it were to come to my attention, how should I handle it as a community leader? Okay, maybe. Just report it to the authorities. Yeah. Straight away. Um, and again, I, I know and I understand. Sorry, this is me trying to be a human being rather than a government automaton but genuinely you know I get some of the concerns in terms of the immigration status issues um, and I think actually they're particularly powerful uh, in an adult context actually um, I think when it comes to children um, that again if someone is disclosing that abuse should be reported there are a number of statutory additional safeguards for children who disclose in terms of immigration status uh, and, and that issue of deportation being addressed that, that means those protections I would say are far stronger for those children than they would be for adults so I would encourage reporting to uh, social worker to detention centre to police because if this is systemic as well and we've seen it in lots of institutions I'm afraid uh, that it takes one person to disclose and once that one person discloses you find that there is fairly endemic abuse within the institution the independent inquiry on child sexual abuse at the minute is looking at institutional abuse uh, it's looked at issues around detention centres it's looked at the youth uh, justice estate there is abuse wherever there is an interplay between authority and vulnerability, there is a high risk of sexual abuse or abuse of that child taking place. So genuinely, please, I'd really encourage that you report it to the authorities. Genuinely, I don't think the immigration status is as germane or germane at all in terms of child safeguarding issues because child, safe, child safeguarding uh, principles take over and take complete precedence in terms of primary focus being the welfare of the child. 
and finally so how can we get trained because i'm a community leader I've got, um, a lot of us are pastors here by the grace of god i oversee about 800 parishes and i'm certain that things like this do exist but as pastors we don't know how to handle it so what are the telltale signs can we go for a training at uh, the booklets we can re receive from you and distribute to our parishes because we need to be trained i wouldn't know what's going on i need to be trained we need to be trained how can you help us? So, so I mean, after this meeting, I'd be more than happy to circulate the sources of support. There are some big uh, charities, organisations in the UK, the NSPCC, Bernardo's, etc., who will provide yeah. training, government funds, certain organisations to provide training. We are looking at, the, in particular, the issue of uh, hidden voices, in particular from BME communities, where we know that there are additional barriers to people being able to disclose abuse. So. You know, I'd be happy to circulate those mm. sources of information okay. and, and happy to pick up a conversation in terms of how we can reach community groups more effectively. Yeah, I think we've got another question about we're running out of, we've only got a few minutes left, so. Yeah, it may already have just been picked upon, but a number of us here are other local regional church leaders, so, um, and other than supporting International Justice Mission, keeping our eyes open, praying, are there other practical things we can do to help our communities to do something about this issue? I'd love just to hear some real practical things we can do to help or is it just about um, naming it and putting it out more in, in the public domain but what can we do to help um, very quickly um, our Clure initiative we've got a website I'll give you a card has a lot of resources about awareness raising not just in faith communities but through the contacts we have into workplaces and other things um, the police, the statutory agencies, local authorities have limited resources. People of faith play a key role in partnerships to add value and resource uh, to working with victims. Um, we can collate stuff and feed into policy makers uh, because it's live experience of what's actually happening. There's a whole lot of stuff that people of faith and goodwill can do. And uh, the Clear Initiative and others uh, are providing resources and frameworks for that to happen. Could you just very briefly explain the role of, of, of the kind of modern slavery act? I know it only pertains to adults, but in terms of the, in terms of seeing this as a, 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 a mod, an issue of modern slavery and recognising that the, there is a framework out there yes. for people to to receive help. Um, so the modern slavery legislation is uh, is groundbreaking, and as a country, we lead the world on having put that in place, and not just that, but also the support systems that are needed to be able to deal with people, particularly those who might be uh, people with insecure status. So it's very important to recognise that we, we've done a good job on that. Uh, but when it comes to um, implementing it, the problem is, exactly as the gentleman said, you know, we, we all in our bubble think we, everybody knows about this, everybody knows about modern slavery, don't they? So we have debates in Parliament, we have meetings like this, we talk about it the whole time. But if I go to my constituency in Basingstoke and say, so, so how would you identify somebody who's a modern day slave? They'd look at me and think I had gone mad because you don't have slaves in, in, in Hampshire, do you? Yes, you do. And they're in every single community, whether that's uh, children who are subject to county lines, uh, who are being <coughs> trafficking, or whether it's individuals who might have been brought into this country to support a family and know that if they move away from that family, they've also lost their job. So they are, um, as the gentleman at the end said, 
you know, sort of you've got that interplay between vulnerability and authority, and, uh, and, and that can be abused. So, we, you know, we have fantastic legislation in this country, um, but we have an awful lot more to do on awareness, and that's why certainly I made this a priority to come to this meeting today to, to urge all of you in your communities to be doing what you can to raise awareness that this isn't something that happens overseas, this is something that happens in our backyard, whether it's to do with viewing child abuse images online, um, or whether it's to do with people who are being um, enslaved for sexual exploitation. And you know, to be aware that modern-day slavery in this country is meekly bundled into two packages. <coughs> One is um, forced labor, which is the one we like talking about because it's really easy, and the other is sexual exploitation, which we don't like talking about because it's very difficult, and our, some of our laws make it quite easy for people to be sexually exploited in this country. Uh, but more of that in another session. Yeah. I'd like to say also we do have that there is now a modern slavery helpline that is operational across the UK. Um, that is very, very easy to find that number. You just literally Google modern slavery helpline and just put it in your phones. I know that sounds ridiculous. On that website, on the Modern Slavery Helpline website, there's also a really good uh, kind of set of indicators. So things to look out for, the signs that you could, that everyone can be aware of. So that if there is any, if, the, if you have any concerns at all, that you can call the helpline and report it and it will be looked into as well. It's the Modern Slavery Helpline, and that's 24 hours a day, and any, yeah, any, any hint of a, any kind of problems you think you might be witnessing, you just call up and you can report those immediately. Um, I think we have time, aren't we? Thank you so much um, to the panel. Uh, as, as we've all talked about, these are incredibly difficult, upsetting things to be discussing, but, but I think as we've as we've all heard it, that you know, the need to acknowledge it, face up to it, and really start moving towards solutions is, is incredibly urgent. So thank you very much, everybody.